Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. It happens with some frequency, and I'm amused every time it comes up, but I have people tell me that they can't imagine me ever being angry or upset, that they've never seen that, and they have a hard time imagining what that would be like. But I can tell those people that they've never watched a sporting event with me on TV, <laughs> or in person for that matter. Um, one of the things I really, really hate as a sports fan is when a referee or an umpire makes the wrong call, and not to, you know, kind of raise a sore point with Eagles fans, but going back a few games to when the Eagles lost for the very first time this season, and the only time to date, uh, they were playing the Washington Commanders, and there was this crucial moment in the game where Dallas Goddard, our tight end, caught the ball and was moving down the field and then was tackled by two of the Washington Commanders players and fumbled. And at first, I saw that happen. I was irate, yelling at the screen, yelling at Dallas Goddard. How could you do that, right? Until they did the replay and they showed clearly that one of the uh, Washington players had his hand on the face mask of Dallas Goddard and was yanking his head around, so it was like, no wonder he fumbled. He was being, uh, you know, he was being destroyed by having his neck yanked that way. Uh, that's what caused the fumble, and, and it should have resulted not in a fumble, but rather in uh, a penalty that would have extended the play another 15 yards. Uh, as it turns out, because that play was missed by the, uh, the umpires, the referees, uh, there was a no call, and uh, they got away with it, and the ball changed hands, and that might have cost the Eagles the game. I was yelling at the TV on that one. <laughs> I hate it when uh, refs blow a call that way. That would not only rob the Eagles an opportunity to score, but it also injured Goddard, who lost several games as a result. Referees and umpires make mistakes sometimes, and it can be costly. We want them to be perfect, but they never will be. Now, that kind of injustice is a small thing compared to what can happen in a court of law, right? Where all too often innocent people are convicted of crimes and sent away to jail. Uh, judges are imperfect. Juries are imperfect. They make mistakes. People don't always get treated justly in our justice system. According to uh, the justice Pro, or the Innocence Project, there are 375 people in the United States who have been exonerated to date by DNA testing. That means that they were convicted by some other evidence, maybe an eyewitness, and eyewitnesses can be unreliable, or they were convicted on the basis of circumstantial evidence or, or whatever, but they were convicted and sent away to jail, uh, convicted of crimes that they didn't commit, and only later 
when DNA evidence was analyzed, was it determined that they could not have possibly committed those crimes. And so then they are exonerated and, and set free. Now, of those 375 people, at least 21 of them had served time on death row. Can you imagine sitting on death row, convicted of a crime, thinking you're going to be executed and you know that you hadn't committed that crime? Of those 375 people who've been exonerated, they served an average of 14 years in prison before their exoneration and eventual release. I think we'd all agree that it's tragic when people lose years of their lives because of mistakes made by judges and juries. Well, you may never have to stand before a judge in this lifetime, but the Bible makes it clear that we will all one day stand before our judge and maker to give an account of our lives. And what is at stake is not just the outcome of a football game or even a life sentence, but rather your eternal destiny, whether heaven or hell. We have no assurance in this life that referees will always make the right call or that judges will always issue a just sentence. So how do you know that on judgment day you'll get a fair trial, a just verdict, and the right sentence? That's what today's message is all about. As we continue this series, we've called uh, A Son is Given, and that's a phrase that comes from uh, Isaiah, the prophet, who wrote 700 years before the time of Jesus, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in this series, we've been asking, what can we know about that baby son who was born to Mary and Joseph and laid in that manger in Bethlehem? And we've been looking into the unique perspective of each of the four gospel writers, helping us to fill in our understanding of who Jesus was. And so in Matthew's gospel, as we saw two weeks ago, we found him to be the son of David, the royal son, the promise-keeping, bondage-breaking, salvation-bringing king we all need. Last week, we looked at Mark's gospel, where we found him to be emphasized as the son of God, the divine son who is in eternal relation with God, the perfect revelation of God, and the one who redeems us to God. And now in Luke's gospel, or in Luke's gospel next week, we're going to encounter him as a son of Mary, the human son. Pastor Ken will bring that message this Sunday. If you're wondering why we're going out of order and doing Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, instead of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's because Pastor Ken uh, got sick this week, and so we're going, jumping ahead to John's gospel today, and we'll come back to Luke's gospel to end the series next week. So today we're looking at John's gospel to gain a better understanding of Jesus as the Son of Man, the, the Mighty Son. Now, Son of Man is a title that Jesus most frequently used of himself in the gospels. There are literally dozens and dozens of references where Jesus refers to himself by that title, Son of Man. And so when people are talking about Jesus, they just call him Jesus in the Gospels. But when Jesus is talking about himself, he says, the Son of Man does this, or the Son of Man does that. And scholars debate as to why he chose that particular title. Why did Jesus refer to himself so often as the Son of Man? Was it to identify with us in our humanness? You know, Christian theology says that, that at Christmas, Jesus, uh, God's eternal Son, became a man. God incarnate, fully human and fully divine at the same time. 
And maybe in calling himself son of man, he was emphasizing that humanness, you know, his identification with us in our humanness. And there probably is some truth in that. But more likely, uh, Jesus is drawing attention to the Old Testament teachings, in, especially in Ezekiel and, and Daniel, where the son of man is one who is sent by God, who would endure great suffering, but also experience great triumph. Son of man becomes another way of describing the work of Messiah. And that seems to be the sense of it when Jesus himself says things like in Mark 2 verse 10, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Or in Luke 10, or 19 in verse 10 when he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You see the emphasis on coming from somewhere? Coming to do a particular job or particular work? In Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All of those references have messianic overtones. They portray him as one who knows he has been sent by God on a mission. He is a man, to be sure, but a very special man with an extraordinarily important assignment. And on some occasions, it's apparent that when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he especially has Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 in mind. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel has a vision of four beasts representing the nations that will dominate the world one after the other, and the fourth beast is especially strong and disruptive and boastful until finally God the Father, who is described as the Ancient of Days in Daniel, The father has decided that he's had enough, and he destroys that fourth beast, and he sends one from heaven who is like a son of man to take charge of things and to rule over a kingdom that will last forever. And this is what Daniel says about him in Daniel 7, beginning at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so as humble as the title Son of Man sounds, it is actually a description of a mighty one who is destined to the world, rule the world on God's behalf. So is it any wonder when at his trial Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, the chief priest accused him of blasphemy and, and called on the Sanhedrin to have him put to death. The Son of Man was understood to be God's end times agent of judgment and salvation. And so we consider today what it means for Jesus to be the mighty Son, the Son of Man. And to help us understand more about that, we turn to John chapter 5, where Jesus himself expounds on what it means for him not only to be the Son of God, but also to be the Son of Man. Now here in John chapter 5, some of the uh, Jewish leadership are really, really upset with Jesus, so much so that they want him put to death. Uh, Not only is he breaking the Sabbath, in their opinion, which wasn't true at all, Jesus corrects them by saying, "Uh, guys, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll tell you how the Sabbath is to be observed. Well, they didn't like that one bit. But not only that, but he keeps calling God his father. and, and, And they say he's making himself equal with God. He shouldn't be doing that. And so in 
defense of himself, Jesus says in John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Now all of that that I just read fits very well with what we learned last week about Jesus as the son of God who is eternally one with the Father, who reveals the Father because he is exactly like the Father. And so Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The things I say and do aren't just my words and deeds, but it's the Father doing his works through me. And so here, in verse 19, he expresses his complete dependence on the Father. In verse 20, he talks about how he is loved and trusted by the Father. And in verse 21, he claims the same authority as the Father, even to raise the dead. Now, none of that is really new to us. That's all very, very consistent with what we've already learned about Jesus uh, last week in his identity as the Son of God. But what comes next in the very next verse is startling new information. And as we'll see, it has to do with Jesus' identity as the Son of Man, the man sent by God to be his end times uh, agent of judgment and salvation. Whereas everything before this has emphasized all that the Father and Son have in common, what Jesus says next differentiates himself from the Father by virtue of the work that has been delegated to him. So look at verse 22, where he goes on to say, For the Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now this would have come as a total shock to Jesus' listeners. And maybe it's a bit of a shock to you as well. The Jewish understanding of the day of judgment was that we would all have to stand before God the Father to give an account of ourselves, to plead our case. But Jesus is saying here, no, actually the Father is not going to be involved at all. He has delegated all judgment to me, the Son. And the Father's purpose in doing that was to make sure that everyone would honor the Son the same way they would honor the Father. There is a certain honor that comes with being a judicial authority, right? So if you've ever been in a court of law, uh, you know, when the judge enters the courtroom, the, the bailiff says, all rise, and everybody stands in honor of the authority of the judge. And of course, uh, the judge is always uh, referred to as what? Your honor. You're to accord him honor because it's in recognition of the fact that that this one has the power of the state behind him. He has power to exonerate you, and he has power to put you in jail, so you'd better honor him. And God the Father says, I've given that authority to my son so that you'd honor him as judge the same way you would honor me. He, Jesus goes on to say, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. If you dishonor the son... You dishonor the Father himself who sent him and delegated judicial authority to him. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When the, father spe- when the Son speaks, the Father speaks. To believe in the Son is to believe in the Father who sent the Son. And that's how you secure a favorable verdict, Jesus is saying. Believe in the Son sent by the Father, and you won't experience judgment. You won't come into judgment. Instead of receiving the wages of your sin, which is death, you'll receive eternal life instead. Make no mistake about the fact that the day of judgment is coming, but today is the day of salvation. He says in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The Son of God was standing in their midst, these who were spiritually dead. He's offering them an opportunity to be saved from judgment, but not everyone will have ears to hear and believe. Jesus claims that he is fully authorized by the Father himself to grant life, eternal life, to all who will honor him, to all who will believe in him. He says in verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So honor the Son, not only as Savior, but as the judge who has life and death authority over you. He has been given power to condemn you, but he has also been given power to grant you life. And this authority to judge is part of what it means for him to be the Son of Man. Now look at verse 27 very carefully with me. This is the key verse, I think, of the whole section, where Jesus says, and he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man of man. Authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not what I expected to find when Ken and I set up the sermon series and he said, how about you preach on Jesus, the son of man? And I said, oh yeah, sure. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, this is going to be a sermon about Jesus and his humanity and how we can identify with him and he identifies with us. I never expected to see this judge thing, right? This is kind of startling. If in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we learn that the Son of Man would be sent by the Father, the Ancient of Days, to exercise dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages, then what Jesus is saying here in verse 27 is that part of exercising that dominion is functioning as our judge. As the Son of Man, he has been given authority by the Father to execute judgment at the last day. And that claim is what sealed his fate at his trial before the high priest and the council. It says in Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 63, that the high priest asked him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, you said so, as if to say, yeah, it's as as you say. But then Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. So I'm, I'm admitting I'm the Son of God, but I'm telling you that from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clo- on the clouds of heaven. In other words, he's saying, you stand in judgment of me today, but I've got to tell you, there is coming a day when you will see me coming as the Son of Man sent from the throne of the Ancient of Days to judge you. Now do you see why the high priest is so upset? You're going to sit in judgment on us? He rips his robe and he demands that the council agree with him that Jesus should be put to death for such blasphemy. 
Well, you know what? It's only blasphemy if it's not true. And Jesus claims that it is true. That the Father has given to him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then Jesus speaks of that judgment day when all will stand before him to be judged. He says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He's talking about here a resurrection so that all of the all the living and the dead will, will stand before him in judgment. And on that day, you'll receive one of two verdicts. Those who believe in him, whose lives bear the fruit of forgiveness and his transforming work, they will receive life. But those who have not believed and remain in their sin will be condemned. Jesus elaborates on that day in another place. In Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man comes in glory, there it is again, right? the Son of Man coming to rule the world and to to judge the world. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus himself says that my job when I come again as the Son of Man will will be to take my throne and judge the earth. That's not something I expected when I started digging into what it means for Jesus to be the Son of Man. That's not the way you usually think about Jesus when you think about sweet baby Jesus laying in a manger. To think that this one who was was sent from heaven to become God in human flesh, who would die for our sins, will also one day be our judge before whom all the living and the dead will stand. To say that he is the Son of Man is to acknowledge that Jesus is the judge before whom we will all one day stand. Jesus, in his capacity as the Son of Man, will be that judge before whom we will all one day stand. And I don't know how that sits with you. You know, whether that is a great comfort to you or whether you find that really disturbing, But I want you to understand today, in fact, that this is really good news for two reasons. The first reason why I think it's good news that Jesus is the one who will be our judge is that only he can guarantee a fair trial. Only he can guarantee a free, a fair trial. Now, we've already spoken about how tricky it can be to get justice from our justice system. Just to show you how tricky it can be, there were some researchers from the United States and Israel that studied uh, eight judges in 1,100 parole board hearings over a period of 10 months, and they were testing that uh, judicial theory that uh, justice, uh, how do they put it, what the ju- uh, justice equals what the judge ate for breakfast. How, how, how much uh, is the judge's mood a a factor in the justice that people get. And in fact, they found that that is actually true. 
that uh, prisoners who were coming before the judge in parole board hearings would get favorable rulings 65% of the time right after breakfast. But, but then, as the morning wore on and the judge became crankier, fewer and fewer people got favorable rulings. But then, guess what? It improved again right after lunch. When again, 65% of cases were treated favorably and then it, it got worse as the day went on. As one observer concluded, the law being a human concoction is subject to the same foibles, biases, and imperfections that affect everything humans do. Biases like a bad mood or even breakfast. It's not easy to get justice all the time. That's how fickle our justice system can be. But you need not worry about standing in judgment before the Son of Man because he knows precisely how to separate sheep from goats because he knows what's in the heart of man. Who better to stand in judgment of us than one who has the mind of God but also the experience of a flesh and blood human being? As one of my seminary professors, uh, whom I respected very much, put it, he said it was only as a man, the man who had lived a completely sinless life, that he could be qualified to sit in judgment on the sins of men at his second coming. Because as the writer of Hebrews puts it, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Who better to put in charge of judgment day than one who completely understands the pressures and the trials and the temptations we face and yet was without sin? Because of what he experienced, he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, and yet because of his sinlessness, he's able to hold us to account for the things that we've done. It helps, doesn't it, to know that our judge is someone who gets us. Now, let me put it this way. Suppose that you're desperately hungry. Maybe you're desperate to feed your family, and so you steal some groceries, a loaf of bread, and you're caught and you're prosecuted and you're found guilty, who would you rather have uh, hear your case and, and, and sentence you? A, a judge who grew up rich and never experienced a pang of hunger in his life? Or somebody who grew up poor and knows what it means to go to bed hungry? What kind of judge would you rather have Maybe that's why God the Father has delegated all authority to judge to his son, the son of man. I mean, think about it. If God the Father was our judge, we could say, hey, that's not fair. You don't understand. You've never walked in our shoes. But you could never say that about Jesus. When you stand before Jesus one day, you'll stand before a judge who understands you and your situation better than you understand your, yourself. And you may not like the verdict, but you'll never be able to argue that you didn't get a fair trial. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the judge before whom we will all one day stand, and that's a good thing. First, because only he can guarantee you a fair trial. Now, here's the other reason that's such a good thing, because only he can offer the perfect plea bargain. Only he can offer the perfect plea bargain. Now, if you've ever watched a cop show or a courtroom drama, you know all about plea bargains, right? It's where the prosecutor offers the defendant a deal. You know, if you agree to plead guilty to this charge, uh, you know, we will uh, recommend a lighter sentence. 
Uh, plea bargains are much more common in our judicial system than you might think. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, scholars estimate that about 90 to 95% of both federal and state court cases are resolved through plea bargains. Only a very small percentage actually go all the way to trial. Deals are made before they ever go to trial. Well, on the judgment day, it won't be the prosecutor who has offered you a plea bargain, but the judge. And the deal he offers you, the deal offered by the Son of Man is this. If you admit your guilt, I will pay with my own life. If you'll admit you're guilty, then I will take the penalty that you deserve. That's what Jesus was saying in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What more could you ask for on Judgment Day than to walk into court and see that your judge is the one who already paid the price of your sin? If you trust him for that, Jesus says, you pass from death to life, and you will not come into judgment. The only way you can be condemned is if you so dishonor the judge as to refuse his offer. To say, no thanks, judge, I didn't ask for that. Didn't ask you to die for me. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The only way... That, that that can go wrong for you is if you refuse what he's done for you. Jesus said back in John 3.18, whoever believes in him, that is the, the son of God, the son of man, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He's turned down the, the offer that the judge has made. There's somebody who talks about how he once saw a banner headline in the Chicago Tribune. The front page had the headline, Guilty Plea Sets Inmate Free. And below it was a picture of a man uh, hugging his sister after having been in prison for eight years. And the story goes on to talk about how this inmate had cut a deal with the state's attorney's office in which the time served satisfied his sentence and the guy says, what struck me when I saw the headline was, my first reaction was, ah, another criminal gets off with a plea bargain. And then I realized, that's what happened to me. Guilty plea sets inmate free. Freedom is not in a plea of innocence, but in an admission of guilt. My story is different, but the headline fits perfectly. One day we will all stand before Jesus, the Son of Man, the one whom God the Father has delegated all judgment. Do you dread that day or do you look forward to it? Will it be a, a day that leads to life or a day that ends in condemnation and results in death? There's no question you'll get a fair trial. The only question is whether you have admitted your guilt, whether you have thrown yourself on the mercy of the judge who gave his life of infinite worth to save you from God's wrath, to plead your innocence, to say, you know what, I'm really a pretty good person. I don't need to worry about judgment. 
to say, uh, you know, if you put the good in my life on one side of the balance and the bad on the other side, the good is surely going to outweigh the bad. Or to say, you know what, I'm not as bad as a lot of other people. You know what, none of that's going to cut it. Uh, the judge isn't stupid. He knows exactly what you've done, and he knows exactly what you deserve, but he loves you. And so he offers you a plea deal. Admit your guilt and trust in me to pay the price you could never pay. Believe in my death and resurrection, and you will not be condemned. You will cross from death to life. You know the words of that great old hymn, I should never come before the judge, the son of man, pleading my innocence or my righteousness, but rather with humility I need to say, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Let's bow in prayer. Amen. Lord, uh, the story of Christmas is filled with surprises, and, and here's one that I didn't even expect to find, that the coming of the Son of Man is the identification of our judge, the one before whom we will all stand one day. But what an amazing thing it is to think that you, our judge, have already done everything necessary to exonerate us from guilt and judgment. You've already sent Jesus to give his life as the atonement for our sin, to pay the price, the penalty for sin that we should have to pay. It's in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, giving his life in our place, taking our sin upon himself, paying the the debt of our sin that you have made a way for us to be saved on that day. Lord, I pray for anybody who is here today and and has been unsure of their standing with you. Anybody who's here today and, and... if when they walked in here and had been asked the question, if you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And if they had given any other answer but that I don't deserve heaven, I'm guilty as can be, but I trust in Jesus. I trust in Jesus and what he's done for me. For any of us who came in here today self-justifying or thinking we're better than others or the good in our lives would outweigh the bad, Lord, help us to lay aside all that lame excuse and come to you freely saying, yes, I'm a guilty sinner, but Jesus gave his life for me. Lord, may we come today in that spirit, each of us, Long-time believers and, and those who are coming to this truth for the very first time, I pray that we would grasp on to that wonderful promise that he who believes in me will not be condemned but is crossed over from death to life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Thank you, Lord. 
that on that day of judgment, we need not be afraid if we have trust in Jesus and the offer you make to us in him. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.